Hey y'all. It's the Christmas season, and some of my podcasts and Investopods and friends wanted to bring you a Christmas time collaboration. You'll hear stories told by creators from the following podcasts. Deep Dark Secrets, True Crime PI, Extinguished, Crimepedia, Walking the Line, Murder and Mimosas, Crime Over Cocktails, True Crime Authors and Extraordinary People, Your Favorite True Crime Podcast with Gavin Fish, and me, Richie Buck from Santa Maybe a Criminal. I'm going to remind you what I always remind you, but this right here is what we in the biz call a trigger warning. So here goes. This podcast contains talk about criminal activity, including violence and murder. It may include a few cuss words, and it's probably not appropriate for your youngins, so you might want to earmuff them or send them outside to play. Now, before we get started, I want to mention three more things. I know, I know, get to it, Buck, but we Southerners like to talk. First up, any opinions in these stories are solely those of the specific creators presenting the story. Suspects mentioned in these tales are considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law, and these are real stories about real people. People who experience unimaginable horror and tragedy. The most important thing we can do to honor the victims and the families of these stories is play an active role in our justice system, remain vigilant in our understanding of our surroundings, and support organizations that work to make sure these stories remain the exception and not the rule. And just so you know, some of these stories are going to be long, some of them are going to be short, but you never know what you're going to get until you tune in. Thanks for listening. Hello, and thank you for joining me this evening. My name is Tiffany, and I am the host of Crime Connections Podcast, formerly known as Crime Over Cocktails. Ronald Simmons was born on July 15, 1940, in Chicago, Illinois. He was born to Loretta and William Simmons. But at the early age of three, his dad passed away after having a stroke. Within a year, his mother was remarried to William D. Griffin, who was a silver engineer for the U.S. Army Corps. That job would have the whole family moving many times across central Arkansas. In 1957, Ronald decided that he was going to drop out of high school and he was going to join the Navy. His first station was in Washington, and that is where he would meet his wife, Rebecca Becky Uliberry. I hope I said that right. They ended up getting married in New Mexico on July 9th of 1960. In 1963, Ronald left the Navy, but then two years later, he joined the Air Force. During his 26-year military career, he was awarded a Bronze Star Medal, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross for his service as an airman, and even had advanced to the rank of Master Sergeant. He retired in 1979. One year into their marriage, Ronald and Becky had their first child, Ronald Jean Simmons Jr. Two years later, they had Sheila Marie, and then over the next 16 years, they produced five more, William, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Rebecca Lynn. 
Ronald was very well known, but not for good reasons. People were scared of him. They just thought he was spooky. And he always had a beer in his hand. Didn't matter what time of day it was, always had a beer in his hand. He didn't really talk to too many people. He was pretty much a private and controlling man. Their oldest daughter, Sheila, about the time she became 13, her father couldn't stop thinking about her. And not in very normal ways, but by the age of 17, he decided he had to have his daughter and she became pregnant with her father's baby. He even told his wife, Becky, and told her, like, we're keeping this kid, we're going to raise it, it's going to be part of the family, and you are just going to accept it. And even though she was completely embarrassed, she agreed that they would keep the baby and that she would stay with her husband. School officials start to caught on because it always seemed like when Ronald would drop Sheila off at school, he gave her more than kind of friendly kisses in the morning. It got so bad that the school counselor called her in and asked her, what is going on? And that's when she had to come clean and admit that, yes, she was pregnant and it was by her father. Her father retaliated against her and wrote her a letter after her confession. And it said, quote, you have destroyed me and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell. End quote. Buddy, I think you're already there. Well, of course, now they have to do an investigation. Ronald wasn't having that shit. He packed up the family and they fled to Dover, Arkansas. There, they bought a 13-acre piece of land and... It was remote, it was wooded, it was about like 15 minutes out of town. Pretty much it was two mobile homes that were joined together. The home was pretty much like barricaded like a fortress with cylinder blocks and barbed wire. Ronald came up with a nickname of his home and it was Mockingbird Hill. It was obvious he wanted to keep people out. I mean, it was littered. It had junk. A lot of car parts. And a lot of cars that have been in demolition. You, you just shit everywhere. Once they got settled in, Loretta, you know, would have friends over once in a while. And one of her friends, Liesl Smith, she didn't go there that often, but she said when she did go there, it was very uncomfortable because he would just stare at you with like these eyes that pretty much said like, get the fuck out of my house. When are you leaving? And that when he wasn't around, the, com the family were themselves. They were fun. They were energetic. When he was around, it's like everybody kind of shut down. Everybody tippy-toed. She thought that was very strange. The kids all excelled in school. They were doing great. 
So it was never like brought to attention that maybe they were falling behind or anything like that. But at the same sense, they really they weren't allowed to be kids. They weren't allowed to attend school functions. And friends were never allowed to stay the night at their homes. And they were never allowed to stay the night out. Their home had no telephone. And mail didn't come to the house. Nothing came to this home. Like, who doesn't get mail at their house? Throughout the years, Ronald would kind of job hop. It seemed like he didn't really get along with other people. Either, you know, women didn't want to be sexually harassed or he thought he deserved more money. But he never really stuck with a job that long. Especially since now he's getting in trouble at work for sexually harassing his co-workers. Becky is fed the fuck up. She wants to leave. But the problem is she's not even allowed to leave the house unless she's with him. This is how controlling he's getting. As the time is going on, it's almost like he is growing more and more into some kind of paranoia, if you ask me. The only time she was ever allowed to leave the house is when she was doing laundry. Which is kind of funny, I guess, in a sense. I mean, he wouldn't even let her drive a car. She knew how, but she just wasn't allowed. Her goal was to save up money so she would be able to file for divorce and to be able to get herself an apartment on her own. That was the end goal. She would never get the chance. By 1987, Ronald had lost his damn mind. You know, his three oldest children, Jean Jr., Sheila, and William, they're already married, living in different cities, raising their own families. It almost seemed like after Sheila left, he fell into a deeper and deeper depression. Jean Jr. ended up getting Mom Becky a P.O. box because Ronald would read anything that she got in the mail. He opened up all the mail. So he had to read it before he would give it to her. So they wanted to have some kind of secret contact. So they got the P.O. box so they communicate. They were planning her escape. On the morning of December 22nd, 1987, he bludgeoned with a crowbar and shot with his 22 caliber pistol his oldest son, Gene Jr., and his wife, Becky. He then strangled his three-year-old granddaughter, Barbara, had a seat, drank a beer, then dumped all of their bodies into a crest pit that he had the children dig up earlier. He just sat and watched TV, drank his beer, waiting for the rest of the family to arrive. As they did come in, he had it all timed perfectly. He would tell them that he had a present for them, but he wanted to give it to them only one at a time. So Loretta, 17, was the first one to receive her gift. He strangled her and then held her underwater 
in a rain barrel. Eddie, age 14, Marianne, 11, and Rebecca, 8, were also killed the same way, one by one. Midday, December 26, the rest of the family arrives for their Christmas visit. Everyone's on Christmas break. They all want to be one big happy family. Ronald's son, William, who is 23, and his wife, Ron's daughter-in-law, Renata, age 22, were both shot. His grandson, Trey, who was one, was strangled and drowned. Then when Sheila and her husband got there, Sheila is now age 24, and her husband, Dennis, 23, was shot and then Ron's daughter slash granddaughter Sylvia Gale who was only six was strangled and then lastly he went to his 20 month old grandson Michael and strangled him Simmons laid the bodies of his whole family in neat rows in his lounge Their bodies were covered with coats, except for that of Sheila, of course. Sheila got Rebecca's best tablecloth. The bodies of Trey and Michael were wrapped in plastic sheeting, and they were left in abandoned cards at the end of the lane. After all of these murders, he gets up and drives to Sears in Russville so he can pick up the gifts that he had previously ordered for the family that he just murdered. He then went to the bar, got drunk, and then went home where he spent the rest of his evening drinking and watching TV with his dead family all around him. He does that for two days. Monday morning, December 28th, he is not done, y'all. He drives to Russville and visits a law office. His target was Kathy Kendrick, who is 24 years old. He had came on to her and she was not attracted. She was just sitting there at her desk when he walked in and he fired repeatedly at her head obviously killing her. Police were called at 10.17 a.m. By the time they arrived, he was gone. Now, there were other people in that building. There was a legal secretary, Brenda Hefner, who was working in the back with a colleague, said she heard a gun, and at first she thought it might be like some kids playing. Maybe they had gotten like toy guns for Christmas or something. But then they heard... Kathy scream so that's when they knew something wasn't right so they ended up hiding in the office and then eventually they were able to call 911 but they said they heard that gun go off at least six times like he had to have unloaded that gun there's still a bullet lodged in Kathy's desk but the weird thing is there was another person in there there was a client and said that Ronald just walked right past her. 
He didn't talk to her. He didn't harm her. It was like she wasn't even there. Fucking crazy. It wasn't until somebody else ran out and started screaming that he shot her because, I mean, there was blood coming out of her head. And they knew that's way more than just bumping your head. Like, they didn't understand where the blood was coming from. So they were scared. I mean, there was obviously a man in the building. They don't know who he is. They don't know why he's there. But he leaves. That that was his only target. At 1027, now police are getting another call. And this one is at the Taylor Oil Company. Rusty Taylor, age 38, was the owner. He ended up quitting that job because he thought that the pay was too low. But apparently, Ronald thought that he should take him out too. So he shot him in the chest. Thankfully, Rusty survived. But a fellow employee, J.D. Chafin, who was 34, was killed. It wasn't until Julie Money, who was coming back from the bathroom, just coming back from lunch, getting ready to start the second half of her first day as a bookkeeper. And that's when she finds J.D. Chaffin, like, lying on the ground. All of a sudden, she sees a gun, a twenty-two revolver, point blank at her forehead. Ronald fires, and she could feel the heat from the bullet as it went through her hair. So she, like, dove to make it look like she got hit behind some crates and just scream like, no. She thinks that he thought she was dead. And so that's why he left. He didn't shoot her again. She said the look in his eyes were terrifying. I guess Ronald almost always wore hats because he was starting to bald. So it would either be a cowboy hat or it would be a baseball cap. And he actually uses both of them throughout the day. By the time the police get to Taylor Oil, Ronald already on his way to the Sinclair Mini Mart. This is about three miles away. The call from there comes in at 10.39, where he allegedly shoots and injures proprietor David Sellier, who is 38, and an employee named Rebecca Woolry, age 46. They're not really sure why he was mad at Roberta or who was like the initial target. They're, they're still not sure about that. But as the police officers get to the mini-mart, you don't guess it? Yep. One more call. Comes in at 1048. Someone had been shot at the Woodline Motor Freight Company. Think about how fucking quick he's being. Like, stay with me now. He's getting in and he is getting out. So now he's going to Woodline Motor Freight Company and he goes for Elaine Butts, who was his supervisor at the firm. Earlier that year, 
the one, you know, who had to tell him to stop making sexual passes at people. You know, like, it's kind of against company policy. When Ronald arrives at the Woodline Motor Freight Company, he's going right for Elaine Butt's office. Thing is, she's not in that office anymore. She's actually been moved across a large hall. So now he goes to find where she's at now. He finds her and he fires at her twice. The company's president, Robert Wood, was kind of around. Obviously, he's probably hiding. But he does note that Robert never said a fucking word. He didn't say a word to them. It wasn't until he walked into another office, closed and locked that door. In that room was a woman that he, he knew. And she was kneeling on the floor. She was trying to hide from Robert. But he put a gun to her head, grabbed one of her arms, and told her, like, don't worry, I am not going to hurt you. He's trying to pull her up off, you know, the ground. And then he offers her a chair to sit in. And then if she wants any cigarettes. This lady would report that Robert then dropped the gun to his side and even offered the second gun that he had on him to her. And the only thing he asked her was, why didn't you visit me at the mini mart? She responded that he was never there when she shopped. I guess that sufficed him. She also refused the gun. She didn't want it. So he put it on a table that was by them and told her to call the police. He said, I've done what I wanted to do and now it's all over. I've gotten everybody who hurt me. Moments later, police arrived and he surrendered. After Robert was taken to jail, they wanted to transport him to a psychiatric hospital in Little Rock because he wasn't speaking a word to authorities and they needed to find out what was going on. Why did he do this? They said the only emotion he showed, according to Sh Sheriff James Bolin, was when Bolin mentioned the slain family, that Ronald's bottom lip started to quiver. Ronald Simmons was charged with 16 counts of murder found guilty and sentenced to death on May 31, 1988. Arkansas Governor, later President Bill Clinton, signed his execution warrant, and on July 25, 1990, he died, as he had chosen to do by lethal injection. Ronald Simmons had made a statement before the court at his trial, which stated, to those who oppose the death penalty in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. He knew he should go to hell for what he did. Just to do like another breakdown of who was murdered, on December 22nd of 1987, Ronald Gene Simmons Jr., age 29, it was his son and he shot him. Same day, the 22nd, Rebecca Simmons, 
was 46. It was his wife, gunshot. Same date, 22nd, Barbara Simmons, age 3, granddaughter, strangulation. Same date, Loretta Simmons, 17, daughter, strangulation. Same date, Eddie Simmons, age 14, son, strangulation. Same date, Marianne Simmons, age 11, daughter, strangulation. Rebecca Becky Simmons, age 8, daughter, strangulation. December 26, 1987, William Billy Simmons II was 23. It was his son and a gunshot. Same date, 26, Renata Simmons, 22, daughter-in-law, gunshot. William Trey Simmons III was one years old, grandson, drowning. Sheila Simmons McNulty, 24, daughter, gunshot. 26, Dennis McCulty, 23, son-in-law, gunshot. 26, Sylvia Gale Simmons, 6, daughter and granddaughter, strangulation. Also on the 26th, Michael Simmons, 20 months old, was his grandson, strangulation. On the 28th of December, 1987, Kathy Kendrick, age 24, acquaintance, gunshot. December 28th, J.D. Chafin, 33, stranger, gunshot. J.D. is the only one he did not know. All of these were planned. All of these could have been preventable. All resources that were found in today's episode were found on the Scare Chamber and Wikipedia. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure to come check out Crime Connections if you like speaking with survivors. I talk with real survivors of real crimes. We talk about what happened, but also how did they start to heal? What worked for them? What didn't work for them? After the crime is when the journey truly begins. So come join us on your favorite podcast platform, Crime Connections. I urge you to listen to all the podcasts that are contributing to this project. Deep Dark Secrets, True Crime P.I., Extinguished, Crimepedia, Walking the Line, Murder in Mimosas, Crime Over Cocktails, True Crime Authors and Extraordinary People, Your Favorite True Crime Podcast with Gavin Fish, and of course, Santa May Be a Criminal. Now, remember, always, always, always... Be nice.
Oh, oh, oh. Here. 